reading of God's Word, we'll look at Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at the end of chapter 2, and verses 25 through 30, a man named Epaphroditus that we don't hear much of because he is only basically here in Scripture. So he has one shot to speak to us, in a sense, through Paul, what Paul writes, and ultimately God speaks to us. I have thought it necessary to send to you of Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You may be seated. If you were to consider whether you are risk-averse or a risk-taker, where would you land on that? So think through that for a minute. Because my goal is to push you, in a sense, a bit towards over the edge of being a risk-taker. Now, to some, that means a thrill-seeker, a more daring life just to take a bunch of thrill-seeking kinds of things. And, and related to that, there have been a couple records set in the last couple months. Uh, down in Florida, a couple months ago, at Universal uh, Volcano Park, a water park, they completed the uh, highest water park in the world now, 200 feet, um, 13 stories. So as you ascend up through the volcano, walking, you're wondering along, is this risk worth it? What am I getting myself into? And, and they put you inside this capsule. Inside of the capsule, as you await, there's, you can hear a drum beating. It's kind of matching your heart beating as you're wondering about the risk. And the worker counts down three, two, one, and then the bottom of the capsule opens and you go down through the Koakiri body plunge, 200 feet at a 70% incline, basically, you know, a feel of a, um, a free fall. So that's one kind of risk-taking that some might consider. There's another one just in the last 10 days out in... Um, in Yosemite National Park, El Capitan, a, a sheer uh, granite cliff, 3,000 feet, um, takes experienced uh, good climbers in the neighborhood of five to seven days to do, in which they're, they're camping out, they're bivouacking um, as they hang from cliffs uh, when they spend the night. They hang their tent there and, and uh, sleep somehow as they ascend that. So that's, that's the good uh, climbers. But the, 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 the great one, this guy named Alex Honnold, what he did is this. He ascended it in under four hours. That wasn't necessarily the record, though. What he did was he did it free soloing. No ropes, no gear. He just climbed the sucker. One bad footstep and you're dead. So how, here's how he handles that. I do have fears, but I just put them aside because it doesn't help me in my efforts to climb. So he just puts them aside. Neuroscientists have studied his brain 
how he does that, okay? So Helen Keller would kind of agree with that. She said life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. Albert Einstein said, a ship is always safe at the shore, but that is not what it is built for, okay? So now, if that's what comes to mind with risk-taking, you know, and that there's going to be this call to, hey, everybody, let's hit carowinds and hit the crazy roller coasters afterwards. Don't worry, that's, that's not where we're going, okay? This passage is going to deal with a different type of risk, not assembling sheer or ascending sheer rock walls, but simply put, am I willing to take the risk of putting another's interests above my own? Am I willing to take that risk? The big idea, we all take risks, and we're going to see day in, day out. Is it worth it? Is it worth it, the risk that I'm taking? 1 Corinthians 3 says, in the end, on the judgment day, all that's been done will be either refined as gold and silver, as a, a good work done for the Lord, or as one that's wood, hay, and stubble and just kind of perishes, done for oneself. So this passage is here that we can see from this simple man, simple man, just like all of us, the risk that he took. And you have an outline there in your bulletin if you want to follow along. We're going to look at the, the resume of a risk taker, the results of taking risk, the uh, reason for taking a risk, and then the reward for taking a risk. So first, the resume. Who, who was this? Who was Epaphroditus? Who was this guy? In a nutshell... We, he was sent from the Philippians. Philippi sent him to Paul with a purpose to give Paul a gift, give him some money to support him. Also, um, he was to stay along and minister to and with Paul. He was going to be alongside Paul. However, sometime along the way, either going to meet Paul or while ministering there, we're not sure, he becomes sick, and he becomes sick even to the point of death. So it's a serious illness, whatever that is. Then what happens is the Philippians hear about it. He's sick, we're worried about him. Then Epaphroditus, oh, I'm sick, they know I'm sick, they're worried about me. One of those, he knew that they knew that he knew they knew. Everybody's all upset. Paul's upset too because maybe I'm selfish in a sense, having him here with me, I'm going to give of myself and send him back, in a sense is what happens. So Paul is sending the letter back with Epaphroditus, basically the letter to the Philippians. So that's kind of context of what's going on here. So Paul, in this letter, is giving us the resume of who Epaphroditus is. Who is this man? And if we look in verse 25... The way it's worded in the English is a little bit different than what's emphasized in the Greek. In the Greek, the way the sentence would be worded would be this. But necessary, I thought Epaphroditus, my fellow brother, fellow uh, worker, fellow soldier, and your minister and messenger to send to you. In other words, he is building up what a godly good man this is that I'm sending back to you. Because as they get him back, they're likely thinking, what are you doing here? You were supposed to be there. Are you not doing what you're supposed to be doing? Paul is making it clear, this is a good man, and here's why. So he spells that out for them 
as he sends them back, as he sends him back. Epaphroditus, now he was not an apostle like Paul. He's not an elder like Timothy, who we heard about last week. He was your normal, average Joe. He was a Greek. We see that from the name. And let's think about that a little bit in the name, okay? In the context of that environment, Alexander uh, the Great, in his influence, in his proliferation of, of the, the kingdom and the culture, uh, the Greek names show up everywhere. Even Jews would, would name their children with Greek names. Christians show up with Greek names. Uh, we see that throughout the Bible. Apollos in 1 Corinthians, Greek name, he was the god of the sun. Uh, Artemis in Titus, the book of Titus, she was the goddess of the moon. So these Christians who had Greek names after gods, Phoebe, goddess of prophecy mentioned in Romans 16, and then for our context, Epaphroditus, his name meant belonging to or favored by Aphrodite. Aphrodite, the Greek goddess or, or, yeah, Greek goddess of love and gambling. So he's favored by her is what his name is. You know, about as self-focused of a god or goddess as you could be. But the beautiful thing about Christianity is that we are called always to be reformed or reforming, refining, redeeming the culture around us. Because God has a claim on all of it. We are to step out and to seek to redeem the culture around us. So we see Epaphroditus with a name that's about as self-centered as can be, being loving and sacrificial for the sake of Christ. And Paul in this verse gives five titles or, or names for Epaphroditus. Three that pertain to Paul personally, two to the, uh, the Philippians. And his names go from more general to specific, basically. First, he says, he's, he's my brother, okay? Yes, he's a believer, but he's also a, a friend, a, a comrade, okay? So he's special in the sense that he is my brother. He's also my fellow worker. Not only my brother, but my fellow worker. And what that emphasizes in some sense as we think about it is Paul is seeing an equality in this. You know, so often when we talk to somebody else, we often think of ourselves maybe as above or below that other person and maybe treat them in a certain way. Paul, in humility, is seeing this as an equal, as an equal who ministers to and alongside him. And thus there's a challenge for us as well. The person with whom we're talking at any time, do we see that person as having value where we can be get benefit from their knowledge, their skill, their history in life, their relationship with Christ. We can benefit from that. We're equals in Christ, and we shouldn't look down on others. And Paul gives us a picture of that. And then Paul says, not only is he my fellow brother, not only is he a fellow worker, but he's also a fellow soldier. And in the Greek, what that literally means is he's my with soldier. He's my soldier with me. Just as Paul is in Rome, chained uh, to a, a, a guard, a soldier, as he writes, here is a soldier, Epaphroditus, who is with him in the ministry, in battle alongside Paul in many ways, whether it's against Judaistic teachers saying you've got to do all these works, 
mockers of the faith, emperor worshipers, and any other spiritual rulers of this heavenly realm. Epaphroditus is there in it as a fellow soldier with Paul. Elizabeth Elliot said, the, 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 the biggest lessons come out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires. Paul finds in these deep waters, in this hot fire, that he can't, he can't just follow Jesus alone. He needs somebody, and he's thankful for Epaphroditus and that gift that God has given him in that man. So Paul says, that's, that's what he is to me, but here's what he is for you as well, Philippians. He's your, your messenger that you've sent to me. I'm also sending back the letter with him. So he's a messenger. And then also he says he's your minister. That word minister was one for a public official who at their own expense, own cost to them because they believed in it so much in that Greek culture, would, would, would pay for a drama or to outfit a, a warship. So they would, um, at their own expense, they believed in it so much, they would invest of themselves into it. Just this past week in uh, USA Today, uh, there was a, a very sad article um, about truck drivers. And, and fortunately, this isn't true of all truck drivers, but it was talking about some of them, and it looked like it was mainly ones who would do short uh, trips from warehouse to warehouse, uh, taking loads that way. But, but the, the, their days were extremely long. Some of them working, say, six 20-hour days, just incredible, just sleep when they can in their cab. But the saddest part that they had uncovered was this, that once the drivers had netted out everything that, that, that they would make, their take-home pay after insurance and fees and gas and um, uh, payments on the truck, some of these guys were making $1 a week. It was basically like they're indentured servants. They were just stuck, and they couldn't get out because those that would leave would then be immediately in debt because they still owed on their truck. So it's, it was just, it's an incredible thing where they are, they are trapped. They are trapped in this. So very, very sad. But the point here with Epaphroditus and these others, in one sense, he's trapped by Christ because he is owned by Christ. But he is trapped because he, he, he desires to give of his own whatever the expense is. His money, his time, he is called to this in, in, in a good way. So he was, from the Philippians, he both brings a gift and he is a gift to them. So he is, in the big picture of the book, an example of, of showing humility and unity and putting others' interests above your own. Um, Mahatma Gandhi said this of Christians. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, he had a mistaken view of Christ as a whole. But the point was there, we as Christians, the challenge is we as Christians need to live out what we claim by word, by our ministry, by our, our, our giving, doing, being. And Epaphroditus was doing that. And here's the challenge and the question for us. is just broad picture. Do you love others? Does your love, does my love for others drive us? Is that part of your resume, a love for others?
So the result, once we see Epaphroditus, his resume, what's the result he gets for taking this right risk? So our inclination is probably to think he's going to go from rags to riches or something like that. But no, he gets sick, sick to the point of death. Paul doesn't say, oh, it wasn't that bad. He says, no, he, he really almost died. And Paul doesn't heal him. In Acts 28, Paul heals this, a man, he heals his father. Paul doesn't do that <clears throat> in this case. Maybe because the apostolic age is ending and the healings are ceasing or, or, or whatever the case is. It's not just a push-button kind of thing back then. It was God's will. Paul was not to heal him. So he, he suffers. But then God does, in his will, heal him. The point for us is this. Taking the risk for Christ might make things get harder. Might make things get messier. Might make parts of your family not like you. Might make friends think you're weird, radical. So it's not all smooth sailing. Not all smooth sailing, and sometimes we just kind of think that I come to Christ, everything should be easy. Look at the results here, not necessarily. But even amidst his suffering, it's powerful to see the, the, the picture of sacrificial love. In his suffering, he's actually thinking of those who are worried about him, of the Philippians. He's worried about them. I don't know about you, but picture times where you're sick at home, um, I would confess those aren't times where it's all about you, you know. I, I would be more inclined to be laying there in bed and, oh, you know, and somebody comes in and, no, I'm all right, really. It's okay. You can go do what you're doing. Oh, no, you need anything? No, I'm all right, really. I mean, when we're sick and hurting, I want you to suffer too, you know. So, but that, that's not what Epaphroditus is doing. He's, he's caring about others and, and, and rebuking me in the midst of that. So, so to summarize, our risks that we take might not make things get better. And that often doesn't fit well with a, a suburbanized outlook on life. Because whether we're risk-averse or risk-takers, what do you hope for in the end of that? Whether you avoid the risk or you take the risk, something's going to get better. That's why I'm doing it. I'm taking the risk so that I get something better in the end. Or I avoid it so that I'm protected and things get better in the end. Maybe not. In the end it will for the believer, but in God's economy, on the world, in, the, in the earthly life here, maybe not. But we're still called to take the risk. The reason, the reason for taking the risk. So jump with me to verse 30. Tucked away at the end. Why do we take the risk? Why was Epaphroditus willing to do this? Because it says, it says he was in the King James, I like the, the language there, he was nigh unto death. Nigh unto death. He was so close to it. Okay? And then in the, in, in the ESV it says he was risking his life. Literally what that means is he was showing disregard for his life. He was being careless in relation to something. Careless. Now, careless in this context doesn't mean, oh, you know, I'm just going to do dumb stuff and go out and play in the street. No, you know, careless like that. It means care less about himself because he's caring more 
about something or someone else. He was caring about Paul, risking being careless for himself because of Paul. That's what he was doing. And we see this theme of, of, of lives changed to care for others more than ourselves. I mean, throughout, throughout literature, throughout movies. I mean, you can just go to one after another, whether it's, whether it's um, Ebenezer in Christmas Carol, where a super uh, uh, selfish Scrooge, but then his life is touched with another chance. He sees Tim, Tiny Tim and others, and he's, he's all about giving and living for others. Silas Marner, another old one, the, uh, selfish and in, 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 in a hermit until he's touched by the poor little orphan girl. To more recently, um, Kevin Costner in McFarland, where he's wanting to be a coach just secure and just go on in life and just uh, take care of himself until his life is touched by the migrant farmers and their sons, and he coaches the team and invests in them and lives for others. We know in our heart of hearts that we're created for something bigger than ourselves and take a risk to live for others, which is a great reminder uh, for fathers, especially on, on, on Father's Day, to be called to something more than just a job or just playing golf, or watching TV, or, or, or whatever, to, in, to, to invest and engage in others, whether it's wives, children, co-workers, those kinds of things. And I say that as a challenge, but as much as anything, also an encouragement, because there are so many godly men and, 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 and so forth at, at Redeemer who do this. So it's both an, a, a challenge, a reminder, and an encouragement for doing well in that. But there's one other piece in this, that, that verse 30, as far as the reason. What I have told you so far is invest in others instead of yourselves. You could hear that message at some other local Kiwanis club or something. Because what's left out of it? The one little phrase in there. Ergon Christu. Christu. For the work of Christ. He does it ultimately for Christ. Yes, he cares about these people, but because of Christ. And hopefully for the Christian, we see what C.S. Lewis said is true. It's our relationship with Christ that drives us. And he said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. His relationship with Christ drives his taking risks for the sake of others. And so for the unbeliever who might not agree with this, who says, oh, the Christian, you just do it for your religion just to feel good in a sense, we'll flip it back. Why do you do what you do? Is it for the good of humanity, as a non-Christian friend of mine would say? The good of humanity. But in your worldview... Isn't humanity just an evolved bunch of primordial sludge that came together by extraordinary mathematical odds? As far as probability and combinatorics go, for you to trust in that and to invest yourself in that, you are much more of a risk taker than I could ever be. You have much more faith in those infinitesimal odds. The leap of faith for the Christian 
is not a launch into nothingness where you say, this makes no sense whatsoever, but I guess I'm supposed to do it. No. It's much, much more reasonable. Much more reasonable. Jesus Christ is the greatest insurance, the greatest return on investment, the greatest benefit that outweighs any cost. So, so, so much worth the risk. And then we get to the reward. If we back up to verse 29, what was the reward for taking the right risk? Jim Elliott says, he's no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So Paul says, you should receive him. Receive men such as this. And the word he's using for receive is incidentally the same one that the Pharisees would throw at Jesus. You receive sinners. You receive these tax collectors. Yep, receive this man with honor. And he says, in honor, that word honor, Timé, <laughs> sounds like Timmy, sounds like Timothy, who we just heard last week. And he's saying, Timothy and Epaphroditus are men who should be honored. And in the same way, we should honor those who give their lives invest their lives for Christ, especially those missionaries who, who, who give of themselves to, uh, to, to put aside uh, worldly, so much of the worldly uh, gains to invest in others. Honor them is what Paul is saying. So there's, for, for Epaphroditus, his reward is, is, is quite good in a sense. One, his, his name is, he's a believer, his name is in the book of life. And he is here for all eternity in this passage. This man is commended for what he did. And it leads us then, and what, what, how, do we, how do we tie this together? How do we apply this in our own lives? Risk is all around us. And as we look at, as we look at technology, okay, and the advances around us, the capabilities of technology, if we just look at that area, is stunning, in the age of big data, it's called out there, there's, there's essentially, you know, in some, some philosophical views, it's just a matter of time before all the problems are solved. Whether it's a cure for this, whether it's having life on this planet, whether it's solving this problem, we just need time and we need data. A guy named Nate Silver, statistical guru, he basically predicted the results of the last several presidential elections through the right data. So, so many of these things can be done. But another guy, another Nick, Nick Whirl of N plus one says this of risk management. And here's what I want to hear or, or see in this. For someone who's not a believer, listen how this just bumps up and begs us, see God in this. Here's what he says, because in the end, we cannot manage all of risk. He says this, improvements in prediction have helped save lives from extreme weather, manage the spread of seasonal disease, and navigate the internet. But forecasting has not adequately protected against the ravages of catastrophic technological failure, ecological collapse, or financial panic. In other words, it cannot predict or deal with those once in a whatever type of events. Some, you may have heard the term black swan, those kinds of things. 
Despite our generalized faith in their power to predict, when systemic disaster strikes, we continue to accept experts' claims that the cataclysm was an unforeseeable act of God that no one could reasonably have prepared for. This unbeliever bumping up and realizing with all the technology, with all this, some things are an act of God. And of course, they are. Hence, we have to land, for us, we have to land somewhere, in a sense, that there's always risk in life, and some of it can be scary. Where do we land? Where do we land? In investing, you're, you're trying to get the right reward, you know, so much money, but avoid losing money. Insurance, insurance is good, but with the, the car insurance, the house insurance, the life insurance, you're managing the risk there. How much do I put into it? Trying to avert these things. One of my children's favorite games right now is Risk. Many of you probably played that game. Risk is all about alliances. Form your alliance with this one and the guarantee I won't attack you, we'll attack them, we'll help each other until by the end you got to break the alliance, right? Or somebody's got to win. So even the alliances in risk don't uh, give you everything you need. So in the end, we all take risks. And the best gamble is to ultimately, with our, with our, with our eternal life, to rest in Christ. But that means resting in him, but also then with that privilege, there's a responsibility to step out, to live, to be for him. The ministry and the message the message that we give and the ministry that we do, two pedals on a bike. We give the message and we serve as well by taking risks for others. So final story. Back in the early church, and this is related to that word risk, that was uh, where it said uh, in the Greek, the risk that uh, Epaphroditus took is a word related to parabolani. And that was a group in the early church, Parabolani meant the gamblers, the gamblers. This Christian group of gamblers, of risk takers. Now, what was their risk? It was really fairly simple, but much needed. They would minister to the sick and the imprisoned. They would make sure that martyrs and even enemies received an honorable burial. Because at that time in Carthage, uh, uh, the, the, the heathen would just throw the corpses out of the, out of the city where there, because there was a plague occurring. But these, this group of gamblers like Cyprian, an early bishop, they cared for the sick. They buried the dead. They did the simple things at risk to themselves because in the name of Christ, they were stepping out and doing that. So here's our takeaway. Realize this, quote, um, we live in a maybe culture where we ironically struggle to commit to the right things while chronically battling over commitment. So church planner said that. We battle, we're overcommitted, but then we're battling to take, the, take on the right things. So my call to us is not just, oh, you got to take on one more thing, okay? That's not what we're after. And yet... We're called to take risks, as we see here, doing the things that elevate somebody else's interests above my own and then put aside 
some of my own things is what uh, God is calling us to be and to do. How can we literally take a risk this week that would be in the name of Christ? Would you pray with me? Lord, again, as I said,